Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain you, inspire you, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week in The Kick, the best foods for time-crunched runners and the foot fails your podiatrist really wishes you would avoid. But first, the latest on Nike's Breaking Two project. The company's quest to help three of the world's best athletes run a sub-two-hour marathon, which has never been done. A lot happened this week. Nike released details about the location of the Sub 2 attempt and about the innovative shoes that the three marathoners will be wearing and that will inform shoes that maybe you will be wearing soon. They also held a test run of sorts with the three marathoners, a halfway simulation. It's exciting stuff, and we are looking forward to updating you on this project. So thanks for joining us, and stick around. If you have been listening to the show, you may remember that after more than two years of research, preparation, and testing, Nike announced its Breaking Two project in early December. Their goal is to break the two-hour mark in the marathon. Since then, three Nike-backed athletes, Eliud Kipchoge of Kenya, Lalissa Desisa of Ethiopia, and Zersene Terese of Eritrea, have been training at their individual camps to prepare for this audacious goal. On Tuesday, the Nike team released details on exactly where this sub-2 attempt would take place, at a racetrack in Italy, and also revealed details on the gear, specifically the shoes that the athletes would be wearing. A few hours later, the three runners met for a dry run of sorts. Nike called it a simulation run, to get familiar with the track and the surroundings and the hydration strategy and the pacing tactics, and to do a lot of fine-tuning. Throughout this journey, Runner's World has had exclusive access to the team behind this project, and contributing editor Alex Hutchinson was at the test run in Italy. And I was at Nike headquarters outside Portland, Oregon, where I had the opportunity to interview several of the researchers about this week's 13.1-mile simulation run, and also talk to the team of masterminds behind the shoes. We will start with my conversation with Dr. Brad Wilkins, the Next Generation Research Director in the Nike Sport Research Lab, and Dr. Brett Kirby, lead physiologist for the Breaking Two Project. They were both about to leave for Monza, Italy, just outside Milan. Monza, by the way, is the location of the famous Formula One racetrack, where the dry run was held and where the sub-two attempt will take place in the coming months. I asked Brad to tell me about the location. We have set up a 2.4-kilometer loop um, that's, that's technically the, the junior track around, around Monza. Um, so it's, an, it's a nice loop with very little um, elevation gain, um, and it allows us to, to have a, a certified course from a world record standpoint. So the course itself can be certified. It, it, it meets all the regulations of a, of a certified marathon course. Um, it also matches a lot of the a lot of the environmental considerations that we've been that we've been looking for for the for the perfect race. So, um, those things in combination um, is, are the reasons why we're going to Monza. So, talk about weather and environmental conditions for a moment. What are you expecting specifically as far as temperature, winds, anything else that was relevant, and and why does Milan, Italy, fit the best possible scenario? Yeah, so the the best possible scenario is we're we're trying to get it as close to ten degrees Celsius as possible, which is around fifty degrees Fahrenheit. Um, 
between 10 and 15 is, degrees Celsius is, is, is where we, we kind of need it to be. Um, so that, that location has the, or will meet those standards at the time of day that we want to do this. Um, it also has a lot of cover from trees and other kind of building structures to keep the winds from being very high within the course. So we have very low wind. Um, we have optimal temperatures. Humidities are good during that time. And so that that was part of the uh, those are the primary things that we're looking for as far as environmental factors go. And why did you choose this junior loop specifically at Monza, which is a race car facility and there are multiple tracks with different characteristics? Why this one? Why 2.4 kilometers? Yeah, it, it, it allowed us to have a nice flat course. Um, the turns are not banked at all. Um, so they're, the, the parts of the other courses around Monza had some banked, really steep bank turns, so we didn't want any of that. Um, it allowed us to, to, to take advantage of a nice looped course that's nice and flat, very wide sweeping turns, so they don't have to take any steep, um, sharp turns. Um, so they optimized their, their energy uh, going around those corners. And Brett, when you were at athlete camp number two, when you were visiting the athletes in their home countries, right, you were testing a lot of different approaches to hydration specifically, how are you implementing what you learned there into this uh, event that, that's going to be happening in Milan? Yeah, in in uh, the Monza track, we'll basically have a, a, a transition zone where it's specifically about hydration. So we have this, this region where they'll be able to accept uh, the fluids that we're trying to give them. And from the learning that we had from each athlete in their camp too when we visited them in their home country was to figure out how much fluid they might actually need we started to work on what they needed in training, and then since uh, we figure out now what the forecasted weather should be for the event in, in Monza, now we can modify the prescription and say, here, take this amount of fluid every lap. So every 2.4K, we would give a, a small amount of fluid to that athlete so that at the end of the event, in total, they'll have the fluid requirements that they need for them. So where will this fluid station be on the course. Can you just walk us through one 2.4 kilometer lap? What are the athletes going to encounter and see and be doing as they make their way around uh, roughly eight times, right, for 13.1 miles? Yeah, that's correct. That's That's the number they would run. So it's about eight and change. So the athlete will essentially start on a big, um, a big straightaway where the start line will be. And that straightaway is roughly like 800 meters. And then they end up doing a big sweeping turn, picture a 400 meter traditional track, but expanded out so it's really, really, really wide. So you do a big, big round turn. And then you have a back straight. And that's again, at least 800 meters. So the, the back straight, that's 800 meters. It's wide, very open. And in that area, we'll have the ability for them to get their hydration. In that particular case, we'll be doing the handoff for them so that they can pick up their hydration simply without losing speed. Then after they pass that straightaway, they make another uh, left-hand turn coming back around to the next straightaway. So it essentially looks very similar to a traditional track blown up. There's a small modification on one of the corners where they do kind of a little bit of a zigzag, but it doesn't need them to really change pace at all. And is it perfectly flat? There's slight modification in the course, but very, very slight. So we're talking flatter than a Berlin marathon, but you're looking at maximum a 10-feet elevation change at max. And at what pace will the athletes be running these eight laps in? 
For this particular simulation event, the athlete will be running at 250 minute per K pace, which is 13 miles an hour or 21.1 kilometers per hour. So that's a two-hour race pace. So two-hour marathon pace, right. So, so roughly a 60-minute half marathon, right? You use the word simulation. This is not a time trial, right? What's the difference between a simulation and a time trial from your guys' point of view? What is it that you're trying to get out of this event that they're doing? The, the purpose of this event is not to have the athletes show up and show us their fitness. So we don't want to have them time trial from the gun, give us their best effort. We anticipate right now they could actually run faster than a 60-minute half marathon, but we don't want them to do that. That's not the purpose of the event is to show us where they're at. The purpose is for us to simulate all the aspects of what would be going on in the true Breaking 2 marathon, and that's everything from them to experience the course, to visualize that course, to think about it as they go through the process of the next couple months going forward, how they experience handling the nutrition we'll give them, how they handle the fluid volume, how they experience the temperatures, What's it like to have cameras in their faces? All those little details that they can start to picture because the more an athlete has a pre-experience with something, the more they can execute on the final event. So it's really important for us to give them exposure so they can think about it and have the experience and give us, of course, any feedback that we need to modify up to leading to the real full marathon. How much fluid do you think you'll be giving them every lap and, and what will that fluid be? Is it gonna be water? Is it gonna be a sports drink, some combination? The, the total fluid requirements for the athletes ranges from 200 to about 500 milliliters per hour. So per lap, we'd be looking at give or take 60, 70 milliliters that they would take on from fluid. So the fluid makeup is simply water for some and some handoffs. And then other handoffs, it's a sugar-based drink. We have a strategy right now. We understand that each athlete has tolerance to different types of sugars. They have preference to the sugar flavors even. So each athlete has their own. What you can expect was that every handoff is likely to be a little bit different. It will be a specific amount of fluid packed with a different type of sugar or a different uh, flavored sugar for those athletes. And that could be very between all three athletes. You're describing this as a handoff. So this is not a water station where the athletes are running past and grabbing something off a table, say, how, how are they going to get the fluid? We know that in traditional marathoning, they, like you said, they do grab off from a table, but we observe that you lose a few seconds from having to slow down to pick up. We don't want them to slow down at all for this effort. So we'll have somebody on a, a moped nearby that's able to maintain the speed of the athlete and simply hand off the, the method of delivery, so the water bottle to them, so they don't lose any speed in that instance. Is that going to be your job on that day, Brett? You're going to be driving the moped, handing off the drinks? <laughs> Actually, I think it will be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. high likelihood that I'll be the guy um, doing the delivery. We have familiarity with it because we practice that on a bicycle. So they actually have some exposure to me doing that when we were visiting them. So I think they'll have comfort with that. He may not be driving also, though. No. We, may, that, we, we may have a, dr- a specific driver for him. So, Brad, what else is going to be happening on the track? I think there are going to be three athletes running, and it sounds like there's going to be a moped that will have Brett on it handing out fluids. What else is going to be happening? Will there be pace setters? Will there be other vehicles on the track? 
Yes, right now we're looking at having a lead vehicle and a follow vehicle to make sure that the, the, there's a clock on the lead vehicle so that the athletes can know their splits and know what the total time is. There'll also be a follow vehicle to ensure that these athletes are running the course that we, uh, that we laid out for them. There'll also be a, a camera vehicle. Obviously, we want to film this and, and uh, like Brett said, have them used to that, the proximity of those cameras to them while they're running. So in addition to those three vehicles, there will be pacers out on the course uh, with them as well. Um, so we're working on what is that pacer orientation, how are they going to be positioned relative to each other to uh, optimize the, the athlete's ability to do this. So pacers, three cars, um, having different jobs uh, depending on the car that you're looking at. Any idea yet whether the three athletes are going to stay together in, in a pack with one set of pace setters or whether it's going to be faster or make more sense to have more than one pack. The intent right now is to have one pack of, of pace setters and have the three athletes um, in, in that same pack or, or right behind that same pack. So um, we, we, we know the pace that they're going to have to run. We would like them to run together for as long as they possibly can behind that, that one pack. So will, will they all be wearing the shoes that have been designed for this project during the simulation? Yes, they'll, they'll be wearing a very close um, imitation of that shoe. So they'll have the shoe, basically, but there's still some very, very minor tweaks that we need to do with the athletes because this is final phase for all feedback. So all the foundation of the shoe is present, but little stuff needs to be modified if they, if they request it. Okay, so Brad, what does success look like for this simulation from your standpoint? How, how are you going to know when, when this is over that it was a successful attempt. Yeah, really, to be honest, success to me is just knowing everything that's going to happen, how it's going to happen, uh, what works, what doesn't, um, so that we can make modifications going into the event. Um, it, success is not, in my mind, whether or not we know these guys are fit enough, because we actually know that they're at the level of fitness that we want them to be at right now. Um, so it, it's much more success is, can we do the things in an efficient way? and optimize our ability to do the things that we need to do to pull this off. Um, and, you know, again, like I said, find out what works, what doesn't, so that when we're really super confident coming out of, of, this, of this test event, this simulation, um, that we know exactly what we need to do between, between next week and the actual event so that we can pull this off. So do you care whether they run 59 minutes or 61 minutes? In this particular case, we don't care if they run 59 or 61, but again, we would be controlling the speed with or for them around 60. So we hope that they don't try to run 59 or 61 because that's not the goal. We would have them on target for 60-minute half marathon pace because we don't want them to show us their true colors. We don't want them to go extra deep if they can run faster than that. And is there a chance that the simulation would, would be shorter than 13.1 miles for some reason? So we're going to set it up as a 13.1-mile um, simulation. But, yes, there is a chance that one of these athletes may not run that entire distance. Again, it's a simulation. Make sure that they experience exactly what it is that we're going to be doing. So if they accomplish that, they understand, like, all right, I get it. I know what's going to happen. I feel great. I don't need to go the whole 13.1 to, to get the experience, then yeah, we're not going to require them to do it. I, I think, again, it's not a test of their fitness. It's not a time trial. It's for them to experience. And so if they're comfortable and confident with that experience, um, we're not worried about them going the whole half. So the surface of these racetracks at Monza is asphalt. And I think a lot of runners have it in their minds that they're not supposed to run on asphalt if they can help it. What were you, what were you guys thinking about that? Is, is asphalt... 
an optimal surface because you're working so hard to optimize everything about this location. Why asphalt? Yeah, I'll, I'll make a comment on that. So asphalt is very fast. Asphalt does not take up any energy from every foot strike. It, it, it is <laughs> probably the most resilient kind of uh, surface that you can have. So we're not losing any energy. There probably could be some things that we could do to optimize the interaction between the shoe and the surface. Um, but we, but without the ability to do that or, or you know, the engineering time, other kinds of stuff to be able to do that, um, asphalt is going to be the fastest surface that you can run on. As far as your comment around, you know, runners have it in their mind that they shouldn't run on asphalt, I agree that you should not be doing all your training on asphalt because it has no give. It will put more strain on your joints. So to put hours and hours and hours of training on asphalt um, is probably not a good thing for, for your body. Um, so, but it's, as far as a race day, um, that is going to be the fastest track. Any other technology that you guys will be putting to the test during this simulation? I know that there were some wind gauges that you were working with in Athlete Camp 2 and some other devices. Will those be in the mix in Milan? Uh, yeah, so actually that we didn't get to this. One of, the, one of the things that we're using this test event for is to capture more data from these athletes. We're not going to be capturing a lot of data on the actual event, but we want to capture as much data as we can during this test event so that we know exactly how their bodies are responding. Um, and then that allows us to predict how they will respond in the actual event. So skin temperature, we're going to be taking that. We're going to be taking core body temperatures. We're going to be taking um, some muscle oxygenation values um, and, and heart rates. Uh, so we are going to be taking more data and using some technology to get those data. All right, cool. So how are you going to capture all that? Are, are there any specific devices? How, how will you capture core body temp, for example? Yeah, so we have them. We have some technology that's actually been around for 20 years or so. It's a temperature sensing pill that they will swallow, um, and the morning before the the event, and so it's it's in the system for several hours before, um, and that that sends us a radio signal. That these pills actually log their core body temperature throughout the the event, and then we download those data after they're done. Um, same thing with skin temperatures. We have these very very small skin temperature probes. Um, that we will we will affix to their skin um, just with tape, and that that data is then downloaded afterwards, um, and then we have all that information available to us. All right, and lastly, how are the athletes' mindsets around this simulation? How are they feeling? From recent communications, I think they were really excited. I think Elliot's messaged me a few times, letting me know he's really amped to show up and see us all and kind of go through this whole simulation. He's really excited to see what's on the forefront. He's definitely a guy who shows the, the benefit of saying, I want to know everything so I can mentally prepare. And then the messages from the other guys is the same. They're really excited and they're uh, looking forward to every learning that we can give them to help them ultimately achieve uh, the two-hour type of marathon. All right. Well, good luck with everything. Look forward to seeing how it all goes. Thank Thanks you very much. Yeah. Now, while I was at Nike headquarters outside Portland, contributing editor Alex Hutchinson was on his way to Italy. And on Tuesday, the day of the simulation run, Alex was there, standing trackside at the Monza F1 racetrack. We, of course, wanted to know everything about what he saw and what it was like to be there. So Alex, after a very long day of reporting and writing, graciously got on Skype with us to give us a recap of the day. 
Hey, Alex. So, wow, what a what a day. How are you doing over there? Uh, it, it was a very long day, but a very interesting day. I just got back to my hotel after after watching the the test event, and it was. Uh, yeah, it was. There was a lot to, to to learn and to observe from the from the event. All right. So, just to orient listeners, uh, it, it is Tuesday, March seventh, and it is a little before six o'clock Eastern time here at the Runners World offices in Pennsylvania. You are in Italy. It is six hours ahead, which means it's almost midnight for you. And you spent the entire day at the Monza track, and you were there for this half simulation run. And it it's been. A pretty crazy day around our office here as well. We posted several stories to the website. You wrote a couple really good stories on the site. So I honestly don't even know what happened. I have no idea what happened in the simulation. I don't know what their times were. I don't know if everybody even finished. So what happened? Well, the first thing I should say is that it is it is close to midnight here in Milan. And as a result, to get back home to my hotel or back to my hotel room here, we had to hurry the waiters along and leave early from dinner because this is still early in Milan, so. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the race simulation started, it was set for five o'clock today, and um, one of the big focuses here has been finding the perfect environmental conditions uh, to run a marathon in. And, uh, you know, nature doesn't like to be controlled, and so uh, it, it was a very windy day today. Now, today wasn't obviously the final test event, but they selected this place, the Monza Formula One track, because it's sheltered, it's got trees and buildings around it, and it generally has winds that gust at no more than five five miles an hour. Now, I, I had a chance to run on the track today. They they uh, Before the, the, the big shots, the real runners went for it, they, they set up the pace guard at two-hour marathon pace and invited those of us who were there to try chasing the car for you know a few hundred meters, which was basically an all-out sprint. That's hard enough, but there was a wind in our face that was that was really substantial. The kind of wind that had this been the actual marathon event, they would have canceled it. No, like they would have put it off for another day. It was it was really strong. So there were there were some uh, you know before the before the this this simulation even started, we knew that things weren't going perfectly. Um, so that said, they they got it going and they had. In addition to the, th- the three athletes, uh, Elliot Kipchoge, Zersene Tedese, and Lalissa Sissa, they had 11 pacemakers here, uh, I believe it was, uh, to try and practice. They haven't decided exactly how they're going to do the, the drafting and the windbreaking in the final event. So they were trying different formations, uh, trying different options. So it was a pack of runners going around this Formula One track, following a, a Tesla uh, outfitted with a whole bunch of electronics, including a big scoreboard on the back that gave elapsed time and cumulative time and projected finish time to the runners because they had every 200 meters, they had timing mats that were wirelessly transmitting the time to this Tesla, which was being driven by a real Formula One driver. Um, because apparently, I don't have to find out more about this, but from what I understand, if they used, say, an automatic car, like a computerized car to drive at exactly the right pace, that would violate some IWF rules about pacing. So they had to have a highly skilled driver who can drive at exactly 21.1 kilometers per hour uh, with these runners following them. So it, it, there was a lot of, there were a lot of these little details going on. And, you know, on the back straight, they had a guy on a moped driving along beside the runners, it's, it's, uh, giving them drinks, color code, special color-coded bottles, one, you know, different colors for each runner. 
it was so that they didn't have to slow down. They could just reach out and grab a bottle from this guy on the back of a moped. So having said that, the race itself was supposed to be pretty straightforward. It's just everyone runs at 60-minute half-marathon pace or two-hour marathon pace, and everyone runs together within the pack. And of course, that's not how things play out in real life when you're trying to run a marathon or a half marathon. And so one of the runners, Lelissa DeSissa, started dropping off before the halfway mark, which is a little bit concerning, to be honest. And uh, uh, the second runner, Zersane Tedesse, he started dropping back about three quarters of the way through the race. And, and I thought to, to myself, this is this is not looking good if two of the runners can't keep together. And because of the high, high winds, a lot of the, the pacers were having trouble staying in their formation. Every every time they came around, the shape was shifting, and you know, pacers were shifting in and out, and and they weren't able to keep in formation. Hmm. Elliot Kipchoge looked great, and just to you know, I, I I'm guilty of keeping the the good stuff till last. Elliot Kipchoge finished the race, and it turned out he actually ran 59:17 by my watch, at least. Um, wow. So well, well under 60 minute pace, and so Zesane Tedesse, who had been dropped, actually ran 59:41. So there's, you know, he was ahead of pace. So even though it looked like he wasn't, he was getting dropped. He he was doing what he he needed to do. The third runner, Lilissa Desissa, he came in just under 63 minutes, and that's that's not a good result. Um, it's not the end of the world. It, this, as as the Nike guy said, this isn't a te- this wasn't supposed to be a test of the athlete's fitness. It was a test of their logistics to see how the race ran. So they'll they'll be regrouping now and trying to figure out what lessons they can take from those results. Right, and just to give a little bit of context, the world record for the half marathon, which Tedesse set in 2010, is 58:23. So even though these guys were not out to run a certain time. They actually ran pretty fast for the conditions, especially. They they ran yeah. I mean, fifty nine seventeen is a is a remarkable race in is a, a remarkable performance in uh, windy conditions. And Kipchoge, you know, maybe the, the the key thing is, you know, he looked great. He looked very comfortable. He crossed the line. You know, one of the things they they were all wearing various sensors they had swallowed temperature pills or thermometer pills they were they had taped onto them muscle oxygen sensors and and right before and right after the race they all stepped on a digital scale on the you know by the side of the track so they could exactly figure out how much fluid they lost during the race and so Kipchoge crossed the line he's just run a 59-17 half marathon you know considerably faster than the American record probably considerably considerably faster than anyone from outside of a few countries in East Africa has ever run. And he just sauntered over. He knew he had to weigh himself, so he walked over to the scientist there, stood patiently on the on the scale till they'd taken his weight and kept walking. And I you know, I, I was talking to him a little bit later and I, I said, Okay, so Elliot, you know, you have you have to go twice as far. So what was your effort like today? Was it you know, was it ninety five percent or ninety eight percent or was it a hundred percent? And he, he said he just smiled and he said this was 60%. This was just part of my training. Oh, my gosh. So, wow. so, so that's a good sign. Okay. So did the Nike team do a debrief yet and communicate some of the things that they concluded about this test run? You mentioned that they were testing the athletes' body temperatures and their skin temperatures, and they were also trying a bunch of different drafting formations. And because the wind was so strong, do you know yet whether there are any clear lessons that they need to take into account and maybe even change for what they're planning to do for the final attempt? Well, for, for some of the data analysis, it's going to take some time to break down, you know, the, whether they were taking enough fluids and how much, you know, temperature and things like that. But some lessons are really obvious. 
the, the pacing needs to, they really need to work on the drafting pattern. And one of the things they did was, so it was it just, it was uh, almost eight laps of the, of this 2.4 kilometer loop. And they, so they had, you know, they had a group of pacers go for the first three laps and then they had other pacers come in and some drop out and they had various patterns. And then for the last 2.4 K, the plan was all the pacers drop out. Let's just have the three runners running together and working together. And the assumption is that the reason they wanted to do this is they're still considering the possibility of going for a certifiable world record. And to do that, they would have to have no pacers jumping in and out, uh, which would mean they'd have to finish the race by themselves without pacers. So they, they tried that today. And, the, you know, the, the way it played out is that the, the runners were nowhere near each other. They were they were they had separated by then. So they didn't get any benefit of helping each other or drafting each other. So I don't have confirmation of this, but I, I would think the first clear lesson that they're going to take from this is they're going to have to go with the full drafting plan uh, with fresh pacers jumping in partway through the race to make sure the runners have help all the way through the race, which would preclude uh, a sort of normal world record. That's that's That would be my interpretation of, of the first lesson that they would take from this experience. Okay. All right, Alex, thank you for that. Pretty, pretty exciting. Uh, I, I know you're tired, but if you wouldn't mind, stay with us for a little bit longer because I want to also talk to you about the gear that the athletes were wearing, specifically the, the shoes. Um, all three of them were wearing their own personalized version of the Vaporfly Elite shoe. And with me here now in the studio here at Runner's World HQ in Pennsylvania to talk about that is shoes and gear editor Jeff Dengate, who, it must be said, has also been burning the midnight oil a bit. He was working late on the piece that he wrote about the shoes for our website that we posted this morning. He was in New York City to get a deep dive on these shoes from Nike on Friday. And he's also just been kind of walking around like a kid on Christmas morning with all this cool, legitimately innovative technology that we're taking a look at. Right? Hey, Jeff. Hi, David. All right. So as I mentioned at the top of the segment, I was at Nike headquarters in Portland last week while you were in New York City getting the deep dive. And while I was there, I spoke with two of Nike's shoe gurus. The first was Stefan Guest, Nike's senior design director in innovation. And the second was Gung Lo, a senior researcher at the Nike Sport Research Lab. We have a few clips from that conversation that I want to share with you both, and then I'll ask you for your reaction. Uh, here I ask Gung, what exactly makes this Vaporfly Elite shoe so unique? So the two uh, key performance components of the Elite shoe uh, is, is cushioning and, uh, and uh, embedded a carbon fiber plate. And the functional um, benefits of both components really we're trying to help the runner to become more efficient, to lose less energy, to waste less energy um, during the run. So first, the cushioning perspective. We use a really highly resilient foam um, to provide cushioning. So the very, very unique feature of this foam is that it's soft, so traditionally, when we take a conventional foam, uh, we compress it with the machine and uh, trying to look at how much energy is being returned. Um, and if we see some foam that can return energy at 70%, we're really happy. Um, but with this foam, we are able to get 85% to 90% of energy uh, returning to the runner. So that's the really, really unique feature of it, and while being very, very soft. 
Okay, so that's Gunglo talking about the cushioning in this shoe, Jeff. And we're going to get into the second feature that sets the shoe apart in a, in a minute. But so he mentions energy return and he mentions some percentages there. What does energy return actually mean for the runner and how notable is this number that they're claiming? Yeah, so energy return is a really buzzy term in running shoes right now. Uh, it's really about when you land, you put energy into the foam, you compress it, and all foams do return some energy. They spring back, basically, when you go to push off. And that is typically anywhere in the 40 to 60% range is what we see in shoes. A lot of the rest of the energy is lost as heat, noise, things of that nature. So to say 85% is an off-the-charts number. Uh, in the Runner's World Shoe Lab, the highest we've measured in uh, any of the shoes was right about 70%. Um, so this is really way above and beyond. And we do have a sample of um, one of the 4% shoes in the lab now. We're going to test that and find out where it measures up to all the other shoes we've ever tested. But one of the things that runners really kind of get from a shoe that kind of has that much energy return is it feels bouncier underfoot. Um, an energy return by itself isn't necessarily a a performance enhancer. Uh, a trampoline, for example, has far more energy return than a running shoe does, but nobody's going to propose that we're running down the street with trampoline attached <laughs> to our feet. Although that um, would be funny. It has to It has to work in the flow of directing a runner's energies forward down the road. So all shoes do that to a degree. This is really uh, novel, and they are tuning it to make the runners really be able to get down the road faster. Okay, now for the second key performance component of the shoe, and it's this carbon fiber plate that is embedded into the midsole. And when I was in Portland talking to Gung and Stefan, we actually had a bunch of prototypes on a table and and the components themselves. And I was able to hold one of these plates. And it's, you know, it's it's the length of a shoe. So it runs from heel to toe. And when I was looking down on it from above, it's sort of shaped like a spatula. And then if you turn it sideways and look at it from a p- profile view, it has the shape of a spoon. So it's got this really interesting shape, and I asked Gung to explain the reason for that shape. So when runners run at the push-off phase or the late stance, um, runners would roll off their toe. And when that happened, we have some mechanical energy loss at this joint we call metatarsophalangeal joint. So that's the joint that connects your toe um, to the foot. And by stiffening up the shoe, we can minimize how much energy is being lost there. If the plate is a pure flat plate, there is a negative consequence to that. So if the plate is stiff and flat, what would happen is that it will increase the lever arm about a runner's ankle, and that will increase the load on the calf muscle and Achilles tendon. So what we did next was creating this rocker geometry. So when runner push off, they're rolling off the plate instead of bending over the toe. That's the magic of it. So, Jeff, this rocker geometry, is it indeed magic? Uh, magic? No, but some, some clever engineering maybe. Um, there's kind of a lot of questions about how this is working, and he, he did a good job of explaining what um, they're trying to achieve with this. And as you go through your stride, your toes bend, and there is some energy loss happening with that movement. Um, Sprinters and high jumpers and such have always had plates in their shoes, and they're very rigid uh, for the propulsive forces that they really need to generate. Distance runners going 26.2 miles can't have that. When he talks about the lever arm, it's, it's basically making that stiffness so far out from your ankle, it's causing 
your leg to have to do far too much work um, and that you just isn't sustainable over that distance. So they have to find a way to do that. By rounding that, it allows you to basically just roll off there, but you're also reducing some of the forces, you know, the energy that's happening through that normal toe off without that plate. Um, so it's not working in any sort of spring. It's really stiffening it up and allowing you to have that propulsive toe off there. Um, any stiff shoes we've we've typically seen do have a sort of rounded bottom. They often have a thicker profile, and that really is if you can't bend your toes, you have to have something rounded to help make that a little bit smoother transition through your stride. Right. Yeah. Okay, so you mentioned a spring-like effect, and Alex, we're going to talk about that in a, in a couple minutes because I know that that dynamic has been part of the conversation and even the controversy around around the shoe. Um, but first, before we get to that, I just want to touch on another really distinctive feature of this shoe, which is how thick the midsole is. I mean, if someone said to you, I'm about to show you what, what we think is the fastest running shoe on earth, you'd probably picture something that looks like a, a, a running flat or a track spike. This looks like a really bulky shoe. It's it's almost Hoka-like, you know, to borrow another brand's, um, you know, visual. And it was fascinating. And, and I asked Stefan Guest um, about this, and he said that when they started this initiative two, three years ago, they actually were aiming for a racing flat. But the feedback that they were getting from athletes who were telling them how much it hurts to run on concrete as fast as they run in shoes that are as thin as the ones that they typically run in, um, they really wanted more protection. They wanted more cushioning without having to sacrifice the resilience, right? And it also coincided with some of the results that they were getting from their lab where they were doing wind tunnel tests of this new foam that they had developed and this plate. And they really were seeing that they had an opportunity to kind of rethink what a fast shoe not only acts like, but looks like. And it doesn't have to be a minimalist shoe. It can actually have a lot of cushion underfoot and still be plenty fast. So, Jeff, I'm curious, when you saw the shoe for the first time on Friday, were you surprised about the way it looked as well? I, I was a bit, yeah. You, you typically think of a shoe being much closer to the ground, getting the, the foot a lot closer to the ground. But when you start hearing the story, it, it makes sense. And it, the first thought was, this looks like a Hoka. And having experienced Hokas and this, the, the lightness that they've been able to deliver in foams, um, you start to think, well, this could make sense. I mean, it is a very, very light shoe. And as soon as you grab it and you have it in your hand, you, you don't care what it looks like. You're just, you totally are lost in the weight of this shoe. Um, it is a performance shoe regardless of what it looks like okay so what about this foam it's it's proprietary and nike really wasn't able to tell us too many details about it but it's not the traditional eva foam right which is the kind of foam that is typically in a running shoes midsole yeah eva is a a soft foam it's a really a good material we've used for decades um Lately, there's been a big push to go for other materials. Um, it started with Adidas Boost bringing out um, a TPU-based material, which is a little bit heavier and bouncier, and a lot of people are bringing out their own sort of secret spin on it. And um, we've learned with this Nike material, they're actually using something called PBAX. Um, and it's a plastic that's been used in running shoes and ski boots and whatever. In running shoes, we've seen it as like the plastic bridges and uh, plastic cradles, usually hard, rigid plastic parts. Um, it does have some pretty good... Uh, properties. It, it's bendable and it resists impact, but they've learned how to 
turn it into a foam, um, blow it into a foam, inject something in there to create little bubbles and create a cell structure in there. That allows it to then compress and spring back, and they're finding really good energy return while having very lightweight properties to it, much lighter than what you're going to find in EVA, and it's going to hold up and spring back really well. Okay, so that's your guess that they injected something, whether it's air or some other gas or something, into this pretty hard material called PBAX to make it softer and more resilient. Well, they had to do that to foam it. It's a it's a plastic piece. They make it molten, and then they, they inject something in there or create a foaming agent, a blowing agent that's going to create that cellular structure to create the foam product out of it. Okay. Back to high school chemistry a little bit for this. So, Jeff, you also mentioned how light these shoes are. They're still tweaking the weight of this elite shoe, and they probably are going to try to shave even another gram or two or five from it for the final attempt. But right now they are between 180 and 190 grams for uh, a, a size that these athletes would wear. And they said that it was important to them to get under 200 grams. So put that into context for us. How significant is that weight when you're talking about a shoe that's meant to carry these guys to at least theoretically a sub two hour marathon? How much of a difference is that going to make? It has to be a, a lightweight shoe. Um, that 180, 190 grams is working out to be about six and a half ounces or so, which is a, a very lightweight shoe. There are lighter shoes out there that you can get, but typically you're going to find those being used for shorter distance races. So there's just not enough underfoot to protect your legs from the road for 26 miles. Um, so it is important to have those lightweight shoes, though. You can't go into uh, the race with a heavy trainer because it's typically thought about every three and a half ounces is going to cost you 1% energy uh, use. So you're going to burn 1% more energy for every three and a half ounces heavier that your shoe is swinging out there on the end of your leg. There's one thing I heard Nike mention a while back, and that's they've talked about this with other shoes. Their focus isn't necessarily on lightweight, it's on right weight. And so that is keeping the balance right. They don't necessarily want to shave weight just to shave it. Um, if they can keep the weight down, that's great. But if the shoe's performance starts to suffer, they're not going to do that. And it looks like that might be the case because they could certainly go lighter with a product like this. But as as you see, you know, they, they told you they're putting that much material underfoot because the athlete said, I want more there. That's going to have a penalty in terms of weight, but they're finding out that that's what they need to make this project happen. Okay, so this shoe, the Vaporfly Elite, is is one of a kind or maybe three of a kind, right? Because they're designing these for these three athletes. And they're really designed to be used once, right? This is not a shoe that th these athletes are going to wear in their next race or during a training run. It really is a single-purpose, almost a disposable shoe, right? Yeah, the goal is to get under two hours with that shoe. And so it's being built with that specific purpose. If they ever need another shoe, I'm sure they can get a pair. Um, but it is not, it's not intended to be one like I would have in my closet where I want to get a handful of races out of it because I paid a bunch of money for it. Um, this is really meant for and being built for the conditions of that day and that trial. Okay. And it has a flyknit upper and they're testing out whether the guys like the higher cuff or the below the ankle cuff. Um, and it's not going to be available to the to the general public, but it is sort of at, at the top of this product line. And there are two other shoes that Nike unveiled today. And this is in the story that you published on our site today. And the, the, the lowest model, if you will, is called the Zoom Fly. And that has a slightly different foam, a totally different upper, and a different material in, in the plate, but still a pretty high-performing shoe. And then one level up from that is the... Zoom Vaporfly 4%, which Nike says has 
all the same characteristics as this Vaporfly Elite, but just sort of toned down for regular folks like us, right? Even though it's a $250 shoe. Uh, and it's interesting that they put this in the name. Again, it's the Vaporfly 4%. So I asked Gung Lo to explain what that 4% referred to. In terms of the gap between where the world record is and the breaking to target, um, we are roughly at um, a gap of this 2.5% difference in terms of time and racing speed here. So we set our goal to be, let's improve running economy by 3%. And we achieved a shoe um, that delivered a benefit that overshot our initial goal, um, delivering 4% improvement in running economy. And Gung also told me that they derived this 4% number after they did more than 100 testing sessions and they tweaked every variable to the shoe one variable at a time so they would change the forefoot cushioning a little bit and then have one of the athletes run in the shoe on the treadmill and actually alex and i saw this when we were out at nike headquarters um, in early december we saw them doing these tests and putting on a different shoe that had a slightly different rigidity to the plate and they would just change one variable at a time, and then they'd talk to the athlete, and they would look at the the data that showed how hard they were working in this shoe that had one slight difference from the shoe that they wore, you know, a few minutes before. And eventually, all that fine-tuning yielded what they found pretty consistently to be a 4% improvement in running economy. So what exactly does that mean, and how big a deal is it, Jeff? You know, it's a big deal. They also did the testing not only in their own labs, but they have worked with Roger Cram, University of Colorado Boulder, who he has tons of integrity. He's done a lot of testing over the years, and, and really he came at that 4% number as well. And what that really means is that if you're going to run for a, a set distance at a, a set pace, you would use 4% less energy to cover that distance at that pace. So you're holding those variables. It's just the, the amount of energy you're expending. And they measure it by um, testing how much oxygen you're taking in, how much carbon dioxide you're expelling to figure out just how hard you're really working. So it's all about getting from point A to point B more economically. So it seems like a, a pretty audacious promise to make about a shoe, and clearly they're confident in it because they put it in the name. It, I mean, has has any other shoe company ever made this kind of claim that if you put the shoe on your foot and you run your running economy will improve by such a large amount? Not such a large amount. When Adidas rolled out Boost in 2013, they did make a claim. And Boost is Adidas's foam that goes in their, their midsole. Their bouncy foam. They made the claim that it would improve your economy by 1%, which was a, a pretty big number, and a lot of people doubted it. They had some studies that, that they they said verified it, and um, it is. It's that bouncy material. So that was 1%. We're, we're talking four here. That's, that's a pretty big number. But nobody's ever put the shoe, the, the shoe name. They've never put that number there. Okay, so lots of pretty innovative stuff, right? I mean, this, of course, is a big, ingenious marketing program that Nike has built into this Breaking Two project. But there's also some pretty interesting and legitimate innovation here, wouldn't you say? It definitely. And, you know, this, the shoe, the 4% shoe, like somebody that I could I could get into in June, has been tested by other elite athletes in races over the last year or so. Iterations of it have been proving themselves on the fastest stages. So what they're learning from some of these, these top-tier athletes is actually trickling down to 
everyday runners. If you have a goal and you've been working your butt off and you need to get just a little bit faster, maybe you want that BQ, um, maybe the footwork can give you just a little edge to help you go just a little bit quicker to that goal. Right. Maybe it's just a head game too. You know, you have that confidence. You're going to feel fast. Therefore, maybe you run fast. Um, there are a lot of factors involved there, but um, we are as regular runners potentially going to see some benefit here. Well, I'll take either a psychosomatic effect or an actual effect toward my BQ anytime. I ended our conversation in Portland by asking Stefan what the athletes' reactions had been to the shoes so far. There's definitely a learning curve with any new product, and you obviously when you have a product that is really different like this, it's 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 a little steeper. But the adoption is there; they're fully on board, they're fully engaged. Um, even on the aesthetic side, there's it's it's polarizing, and it's what we wanted. Um, but they're on board with that too. A lot of this comes down to perception, um, which is which is everything actually, because you need these guys to feel 100% confident on the day. Um, they're doing something and they've never done, you know? Um, so, you know, obviously we're changing everything on them. So, but we, but we're doing it as you've heard, because it gives a benefit. Um, but we do obviously listen to them very closely in terms of, um, what, what they want. So clearly lots of fascinating stuff here, lots of legitimately innovative developments, but Alex, there's also been some controversy, uh, even before today, as, as rumors were flying around the internet and social media about the shoes. And then once the announcement took place today, not surprisingly, this conversation and controversy continued. And Jeff mentioned the the rocker shape and sort of the, quote, spring-like effect of this carbon fiber plate that's in the midsole of the elite shoe and in the 4% shoe. So w- what about that is controversial? And, and are there any other aspects of this shoe that you think are controversial and generating all these different opinions. Yeah, it's a really interesting debate that has a lot of different angles that come together. So if you if you took this carbon fiber plate in a shoe and you said it's going to make you 0.1% better, I don't think anyone would, would bat an eyelash. Um, but when you say it's going to make someone 4% better, all of a sudden we start looking more closely and say, is this what we want shoes to be? Because it's a big advantage. And as you mentioned, or as Jeff mentioned, some Nike runners have been wearing this uh, a bunch over the last last year or so. Um, uh, runners uh, wore it at the U.S. Olympic trials. Shalane Flanagan and uh, Amy Craig and Galen Rupp did. The top three finishers at the men's Olympic marathon wore this shoe. And, you know, one of the tweets I saw today was from Kara Goucher's sister saying, hey, w- was this fair that two of the runners who – Kara Goucher came fourth at the Olympic trials and didn't make the Olympics. Two of the runners are ahead of her apparently had a 4% advantage compared to what she was wearing on her feet. So that raises issues about, uh, you know, is, well, is it fair? And if why and why not? And what do the rules say? And the rules are very unclear. They just say shoes can't have anything that gives an athlete an unfair advantage, which doesn't really answer anything. So there's a lot of debate, to debate about what should be in a shoe and what role shoes should play in determining the winners and losers, losers in races. Wow. Okay. So... What do the rules say? Is there any clarity at all? Uh, no, no. In, in, a, in a word, no. That, I can answer that question easily. It, it says uh, you can't have any device that gives an athlete an unfair advantage. Um, and, you know, there's a long and convoluted history because at one point they did try to, they, they used to ban springs explicitly, and then they took that out. They tried to bring the spring ban back, and it got struck down by the Court of Arbitration for Sport because it was seen as an attempt to keep Oscar Pistorius out of 
uh, international competition because he had carbon fiber prosthetics, which actually have a lot in common with the carbon fiber plate in this shoe. So uh, really where the debate starts to get into is, are these springs in the shoe? And Nike and Roger Cram, who tested them, and, and other researchers would say, no, they're not functioning as springs. As, as Jeff explained, they're, they're stiffening the, the sole of the shoe so that you don't waste energy in the toe joint. But the, the fact remains that a carbon fiber plate is kind of springy, and Nike, Nike's patent calls this plate a spring plate. So um, uh, there's no simple answer to this. And I think, and, you know, I, I think what it's going to lead to is a discussion about whether shoes should be regulated differently, whether there should be, quote unquote, technology incorporated in the soles of shoes, which is, is something that has happened in lots of lots of previous shoes have incorporated carbon fiber plates and no one has complained. So in a sense, it's the fact that the shoes are so effective that is making people say, hey, hang on a sec, we need to rethink what, what should be allowed in shoes. Jeff, anything that stands out to you as being either controversial or uh, eliciting some strong opinions on social media? What are you seeing in, in, on your Twitter feed? What are you seeing in comments on your article so far? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the one thing that's really interesting is that you see the shoe's not going to do it itself. They have to have the the athletes and people forget that that part of the the story is also happening that these athletes have been going through a battery of tests they are you know going through all of the training they're setting up for that optimal day so these shoes are potentially just a piece of the puzzle if you get everything else right you may get that little bit of benefit to get you th- over that edge and so that's that's the one part of it and then i've seen a bunch of other people say i want those shoes <laughs> i need those shoes um you know, they're not they're not the thing that's going to make us faster. I think Alex has alluded to it in one of his pieces. You know, money, it's got to be the shoes, right? It, just because I put on a pair of shoes doesn't mean I'm going to turn into Michael Jordan and dunk basketballs. But um, we can have that hope and we can work harder for, you know, our goal. And potentially if we can have a little bit of a performance benefit, we want that. Right. So, Alex, you mentioned earlier that you spoke to Elliot Kipchoge after his race. By any chance, did you talk to him about the shoes and, and how he felt wearing them and how we felt they performed or did you talk to either of the other two runners about the shoes so i, I did have a chance to talk to him and and I, I, you know you've met him he's he's a man of a few but significant words so people were asking you know how was the race good how did you feel fabulous uh now what about all this wonderful technology and the apparel and the shoes that you've been uh trying out today absolutely fabulous so uh, so I, I wouldn't say I have a window into his deepest uh, deepest thoughts about this, but he 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 liked it. The other guys liked it, and and Elliot has been really closely involved uh, from from what I understand throughout the process in giving very detailed feedback about exactly what he likes and what he doesn't. So what he's wearing now reflects exactly what he's told them over many months about how the shoes should fit. So. Um, so I, I think he's he's in a place where he likes it, and I and I, I guess the one other thing I'd add about the whole fairness debate that that where I where where I leave it is in a, in an abstract way I think my 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 desire for sort of simple sports would be let's just keep shoes simple let's not have anything in the shoes but uh, you and I had a chance to try the shoe uh, back in November and it felt pretty great so the from a, on a on a on a personal level, I think, well, why would I want to institute some rule that would prevent me from getting shoes that feel that that great and not just make you faster, but maybe reduce the, the amount of muscle damage and make it easier to recover from from long runs. So so it's kind of hard to balance those two sort of abstract things versus the, 
the fact that, you know, the, the truth is that the shoe feels pretty cool. All right, Alex, last question. You have been cautiously optimistic, not to put words in your mouth, but it seems to me that's the position that you've taken about the possibility that one or more than one of these runners will break the two-hour marathon when they make this final attempt. Did anything happen today that changed your opinion of that one way or the other? Yeah, it's interesting. What You know, when Lalissa DeSista started to fall off the back before the halfway mark, I, I was ready to just sort of pack in my, my hopes and think that, well, boy, they, they've it, they've bitten off more than they can chew. And when Tedesse started to fall back, I thought, yeah, oh, boy. But two of them got under an hour. And talking to Kipchoge after and, and how confident he was, I would say... I'm I'm a, I'm a pessimist. Like I I always <laughs> assume that nothing will go right. So I was I was telling people one to ten percent chance that they would make it in in my if I had to guess. I would say I've upped my estimate a little bit. I I would give it still still a low of one percent, but maybe up to fifteen or twenty percent. I think I think it's definitely possible if everything goes right. Uh, it's still unlikely because so many things have to go right. But seeing seeing Kipchoge run that race today, uh, you know, if anyone's going to do it, it's going to be him. And it sounds like some things went right, but a handful of things went very not right, including the wind and the pacing strategies. Yeah, you know, I, I was, I was, uh, you know, I chatted briefly with with Brad Wilkins, one of the scientists, right after, and you know, he, you know, they had a very busy time, and and not everything went right, and he sort of put that positive spin on it. It's like, you know, we we had a lot of opportunities to learn today, and that's another way of saying that when things go wrong, that means they could go a lot better next time. Okay. Well, I just want to remind listeners that you both published some really good pieces on our website. And Jeff, the piece you published has specs on all three of these shoes. It also has first look videos of the shoes. And we also are going to be testing the two consumer model, not the elite shoe, but the consumer models in the Runner's World Shoe Lab right now. So pretty soon we'll have some new data and some independent data that we collect ourselves. So you can check out all that stuff on our website. And those consumer models, by the way, when do they go on sale? They'll be out in early June, June 8th, I think. Out is the in date. early June. Okay. Would you say that you are looking forward to this shoe uh, more than you've looked forward to any shoe in recent memory as a runner and as Runner's World shoe editor? That is safe to say. Yeah. Yes. I, I can't wait to get my foot in a pair and, and see, you know, how it actually delivers for me. You know, we are all individuals you know, creatures of one. So um, it may not work for everybody. Um, Everybody may not prefer it, but, um, you know, I'm eager to try it and see how it works. So while keeping your journalistic hat firmly on your head, put this shoe in context historically as far as news goes, as far as design innovation, mechanical performance. Can you put the shoe in context against another shoe or how, how much of a high watermark is this? It certainly is delivering a lot of hype. Um, you know, the the buzz is there. Uh, that unlike any shoe I've seen that I, and can recall, um, I think you know Adidas Boost was one of those that really was up there with it. And if if anybody recalls, they had these these things in stores where they were steel balls dropping down on various materials, and it created a lot of hype about that revolutionary new material. Um, this is really sort of taking it that next step and promising you performance, um, which is something that you know I don't I don't recall. In a long, long time. So it is is really revolutionary. Okay. Alex Hutchinson, Jeff Dengate, thanks a lot for joining us on the show. And Alex, thanks for calling from Italy. I hope you uh, get some sleep tonight. Uh, 
<laughs> well, thanks for thanks for the conversation. It's a uh, you know it's it's great to have a chance to chat about all this after digesting all this today. And while we don't yet know the exact date of the final attempt, I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens when these three athletes go back to Monza for the sub two hour attempt and toe the line with the intention of running not 13.1 miles but 26.2 miles and. I guess we'll find out whether they can hold the pace that they, that two of them at least set today for twice as long in this historic attempt to break the two-hour marathon. So thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you soon, guys. Thanks, David. You can find links to all of Alex's stories on Nike's Breaking 2 project and to episodes of the show in which the project was featured at runnersworld.com slash audio. And now it's time for The Kick with producer Brian Dalek and food and nutrition editor Heather Mayer-Irvin. All right, so I had to bring in my old shopping buddy, Heather. We're going to start talking about food um, because there was a massive undertaking in our April issue. We have the best foods for runners. Heather, you spearheaded that as our food and nutrition editor. And for people who haven't seen it yet, um, how do we break up this list? Uh, what are we looking for in each list? And, and really, how many items do we have in this? So we have it on runnersworld.com. You can see it now. But tell us a little bit about how we define the best foods for runners. Sure. So, yes, this was a huge project. And one of our best registered dietitian writers, Matthew Cady, uh, took this on. And from there, you know, he shuttled it to me and we worked to really fine tune it. Mm -hmm. In print, uh, which hit stands this week, we had 143 foods and drinks that come in a package. Mm -hmm. And online, we have well over 200 products. So, you know, your shopping is set for a while. <laughs> yeah, you have a shopping list. You have a shopping I list. I go with a shopping list. You know that, and I can add new things to it. And I've seen stuff in stores where I'm like, I know that was in our list, and I grab it now. And that was our goal. You know, people have asked us, you know, why packaged foods, and you know, we live in America, and packaged foods is very much a reality. And so when we put this together, this piece, we thought grocery lists always do really well in our magazine. People want to know, what do I need to eat? What do I need to drink to run better, to feel better, to stay fit? So that's where this inspiration came from. Uh, we divided the piece up into uh, six areas, breakfast, lunch, dinner, fuel, snacks with drinks, and desserts. And what we wanted to do is really you know, show you that there are packaged foods out there that have simple ingredient lists. They're organic, non-GMO mm -hmm. in many cases. And you can get good nutrition when you're rushed and you need a microwave dinner or you need, you know, uh, a bag of pretzels or something. It so sounds like every goal. runner in the world. Every runner in the world. Rushed in no time to really cook. Yes. Um, so over 200 items on our lists online. Um, that means we get to test a lot of this stuff <laughs> yes. over the course of several months. Um, I have a favorite thing that I've pulled out of that. And it's not cereal, surprisingly. But, I'm surprised. But, but do you have a favorite, Heather? I do. I have a lot of favorites. You know, I help put together the list based <laughs> on things I've eaten, samples <laughs> I've gotten. But a couple that stand out were uh, Bobo's Oat Bars. It's their, this baked oatmeal bar based in Colorado. Um, they're really good, great with coffee. 
Um, and I also, I'm not gluten-free, and I don't advocate going gluten-free unless it's medically necessary. However, good health gluten-free pretzels are out of this world. Ooh, I, I don't think I've tried those. I, I'm a big pretzel guy. So I, I there aren't any here. That. I took them all home. Okay. Thank <laughs> They're you. amazing. What, what was your favorite that wasn't cereal? It's not cereal, but it is breakfast, although I'll eat this for dinner as well. Um, big shout-out to Flapjack, the banana hazelnut protein pancake and baking mix. Did so, you make pancakes? Yeah, I make pancakes make... with right. them. Yeah, very good. Good. I'll quick, try it. Quick and easy to put together. It's just See like that? Water. And that's what we yeah. wanted, and it's got a good ingredient list, so... Yeah. You know, mission accomplished. Yeah, so check out the whole list. You can go to runnersworld.com slash best packaged foods. Okay, so next thing, moving um, back into the racing world, um, and we're going to step back almost two weeks. Uh, we didn't have a kick last week, but I kind of wanted to touch on this, uh, especially because we're talking a lot of sub two in this episode. Um, the Tokyo Marathon, almost two weeks ago, it's one of the majors. And um, there were several highlights going into and coming out of this event. The first thing is uh, Wilson Kipsang from Kenya, the former world record holder in the marathon. Um, he charged through the first half of that race under world record pace. So, and people uh, thought he was going to potentially break the world record. He this race, he right? went into the race saying, "I'm going to break the world record." So that made it really interesting for a Saturday night main event type of race mm -hmm. as it was on TV. He did slow down in the second half, kind of at the 35K mark, and he finished in a not world record, but still really good, a, a minute one over the world record, 203.58. That's his fourth career sub 204. And I think we were talking about this in a morning meeting that like, oh, sub 204. Yeah. How uh. dare you predict that <laughs> and only went in 204. Um, the other thing interesting with that, we talked a lot about shoes in this episode with Nike, but Adidas for that race, they had Wilson Kipp saying in these Adidas Addy Zero Sub 2 shoes. So that's their version of a world record shoe. It has new Boost Light midsole foam that makes it lighter while providing energy return as well. Um, I think Adidas in their press release kind of said it's 100 grams lighter than their typical marathon racing shoe. We haven't seen it in our shoe lab yet. I'm sure Jeff Dengate would love to get that to Martin Shorten and see <laughs> everything that's involved in that shoe. But that was really interesting from Tokyo on the men's side. So on the women's side, Sarah Chepchichir, also of Kenya, ran a four-minute PR, which is huge, to mm -hmm. win in 2.19.47. Mm -hmm. But what we were most interested in was the breakthrough marathon for Sarah Hall, who's yeah, it was been a big, trying to get that big. Yeah, it was a big story on our website last week when we just said the simple way that she got under 230 for her race in Tokyo. Yeah, so she finished in 228.26, and she credits, you know, going to Ethiopia and training with a group. And, you know, that's the benefit, really, of running with others. They help you get faster. They train harder. Yeah, she's still coached by her husband, Ryan Hall, and uh, they went over there together. And, I, you know, it sounds like she typically trained by herself, but by kind of adapting her training, it sounds like she went in with more confidence into this race. And that mental boost, you know, as I think we all know, can go a long way. Yeah. And. I, I think I get benefit out of running with other people compared to just, like, plugging into a podcast oh, and yeah. trying to do a long run by but myself. But plugging into a podcast is great when you're if on it's, the run. If it's the runner's world show. Or human race. Or human race. Okay, so I'll cheat plugs now out of the way for runner's world audio <laughs> podcasts. Um, 
I'm not surprised this is one of our most popular stories last week because it involves feet. Um, people love feet and poop. <laughs> people love feet and poop on runnersworld.com. Um, and, you know, because there are a lot of issues with feet, black toenails, blisters galore. Um, and according to the podiatrist we talked to for this new story, um, there are lots of little things we can do every day that will keep us um, keep our footsies um, happy and our healthy. Feeties. Yeah. So as I've said, I'm not surprised that this story resonated with a lot of people. Um, there are 11 things um, your podiatrist really wishes you wouldn't do. Um, I am guilty of several of them. Are you, Heather? Yeah. And so, like I didn't even realize, you know, you were in this mindset that, oh, you, you're, you're one shoe size, just like you're one pant size. And that's not the case. So, you know, they tell us to be open minded and just get the shoe that fits. Um, I do go barefoot in the locker room. I know, I know, I know. Mm-hmm. But I, I can't always schlep sneakers in a bag <laughs> and flip flops. And then the flip flops are wet and then they're in my office. Yeah. So sorry. Just and leave then the stuff o- in the locker room all day. That's what I, that's what I just do. set up camp there. Yeah. And then the other barefoot one, which is really interesting, was walking on hard floors like uh, like wood, which I do at home in the summer. And supposedly that is not very good for you due to the gripping or something. I don't know. I do that. And and splinters. And splinters. <laughs> <You gotta laughs> My house might it. have splinters. You got to watch out for that. Um, what about you? I, I'm guilty of almost half of this list. Um, as you mentioned, um, walking around the locker room without shoes, it's easy to pick up funguses and viruses. Luckily, nothing's ever happened to me. But, knock uh, on wood. Knock on wood that's in the studio right now. Um, I have raced in new shoes. Um, even Well, I guess I've at least done like a short run in a pair of shoes before doing like a half marathon. A new or style marathon. or a new shoe of what you've been running in? Because we test so many shoes here, I, I, I feel like I can jump into anything at any point, which is a terrible mindset, mm-hmm. but I've still done that. Um, I've worn worn out shoes just because I really like them <laughs> on a certain day. And um, the no socks in running shoes. Yeah, I, you do that? Not on purpose, but <laughs> there will be a time when it gets warmer when I don't think I have to pack that much for a run that I will inevitably forget to pack socks. Into. You know you sit two offices down from the gear editor who has a box of socks. Doesn't matter. I'll just – I've never had an issue. I've never gotten a blister from having a short run, a short run, right. and a pair of shoes with uh, with no socks. Challenge on this yeah. summer. So let's see what – and certain shoes I think you can get away with that if they have the right fit for me. That That's my perspective. Yeah. If you listen to the podiatrist in this list, they will say do Don't not do it. do it. The socks are there to absorb moisture and give you that other layer of protection for your feet and do your toes. Do as we say, not as we do. Exactly, exactly. So, Heather, thank you for, um, one, helping me with my shopping. I've been better since we went shopping. And uh, two, doing a kick this week. Thanks, Brian. That's it for this week's show, almost. First, we are looking for your stories on why you started running. Maybe you started as a way to honor a loved one, overcome a demon, or just to prove a point. If you've got a great story to share and you're planning on being in Boston in the days before the marathon, email us the condensed version of who you are and why you run at rwaudio at rodale.com. Again, that's rwaudio at rodale.com. Or message us on our Facebook page, rwaudio. You might get the opportunity to record that story with us in Boston 
and be featured on a special episode of Runner's World's Human Race podcast. Okay, that's it. Thanks again for listening and for your ratings and reviews. We're so grateful for your feedback. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week's show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, and Brian Dalek. Be sure to join us next week for an on-the-run interview with Carolyn Mather. We guarantee you don't do mileage like Carolyn does mileage. You won't want to miss it. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week.